If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Today we are continuing making our way through Luke's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we begin, we think about the setting, the situation in which uh, these events take place. Remember that last time we saw Jesus teaching his disciples, though the Pharisees were around listening in, they even critiqued Jesus at one point and he addressed them. But here again, Jesus has got his focus his direction on his disciples, those that would follow him. And he, in, in teaching them, he is seeking to actually draw a contrast between those that are following him in faith and those that are not. The Pharisees that are critical of him, that are putting themselves at arm's length from them. And this is not something that Jesus only does here. You, we've seen Throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus making contrast, saying, don't be like the Pharisees, be like this. And we might think that Jesus simply found the Pharisees to be easy whipping boys, an easy target, someone to, to lash out at. But if, we, but if we think that way, we'll be wrong. What we need to understand is that in the place of uh, the people of God in Jesus' day, we see the Pharisees being false shepherds, leading the people away from God rather than to God. And now Jesus is on the scene as a true shepherd of Israel, and he is wanting to correct that error. The Pharisees thought and propagated the idea that they were the, the example of righteousness in Israel. The way they live their lives is the way that God wanted every Israelite, every person even, to live their lives. The problem, though, was that they loved their ideas about righteousness rather than following God's instructions about righteousness. So the righteousness that they had, the godliness they had on display was really a sham marked by hypocrisy. Nevertheless, they're the ones always walking around quoting from the scriptures. They're the ones always walking around putting on at least the appearance of godliness. And rather than follow their example, the average person would have felt guilty being able, unable to live up to the standard that they set. So Jesus here is constantly saying both positively and negatively, no, don't follow that example. This is what God's word teaches. Don't live this way, full of hypocrisy, live this way with genuine faith. And so it is that we come to the passage before us as Jesus is looking at his disciples, telling them this is how you should live, and yet he also knows the false example that is ringing in their minds and their hearts, wanting to disentangle the false example of the Pharisees with what God truly desires from those that would follow after him. So that's what we want to see this morning as we unpack these first 19 verses of Luke chapter 17. I'm going to read them now and I invite you to follow along. Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, 
You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. When he one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me now and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty." On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. May God bless the reading of his word. All of these verses center around one key theme, and that is faith. What, what it looks like, what it's its nature is, where it should be placed. Specifically, Jesus is showing us what the life of gospel faith looks like. And by using that phrase, gospel faith, what I'm trying to do is distinguish the vision of life before God that Jesus presents here against the life that produces fruit of false faith that the Pharisees and even some today will live. This is a life that is grounded in the gospel of Christ. And so it is a life of gospel faith. So what does that faith look like? How is it lived? Well, Jesus tells us four things. First, he lays out for us the expectations of gospel holiness. The expectations of gospel holiness. Remember, holiness is not the requirement for becoming a disciple. Rather, it is the expectation of those who are already disciples. Jesus doesn't say, be holy, and you can be my follower. He says, come, follow me, find life, find forgiveness, find justification before God, and once you have that, then follow after me in a life of holiness. And so holiness is the fruit of gospel faith. And we could spend weeks thinking about that, but what that means and looks like, but here Jesus specifically zeroes in on what gospel holiness looks like in its outward nature. In other words, what does holiness look like in the context of the community of God? And he says three things. First, he says that in, in living out gospel holiness, we must keep from causing others to sin. We must keep from causing others to sin. Jesus first says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. He is realistic about the life that we live and the world in which we live. There will always be temptations to sin. Uh, one of the most sobering things that I heard was uh, a secondhand account of some, some young seminary students talking one day with some seminary professors. They looked at one who was in his 70s and said, tell me, tell me, when will the temptation to look on a woman inappropriately in lust go away? And the 70-year-old seminary professor said, I'll let you know when I reach that age. His point was we have to be realistic about sin. Temptations are not going to go away. Our ability to resist may go up, 
but the intensity with which then Satan comes at us with temptations will rise as well. And so Jesus is saying we have to be realistic, but we also have to be careful not to be the source of temptation for others. He says, woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, as its name implies, a millstone was a massive rock, a stone usually rounded that was heavy and used to mill up or to grind grain. Usually they hooked up a, a few donkeys to this thing, uh, either held a carrot in front of their mouth or whipped them on the butt and they started moving this massive stone around and it would grind up the grain. These things were massive, weighing hundreds of pounds. So you can imagine the idea of having one of these things tied around your neck and you dropped into the sea. It's not exactly a swim that you're coming back up from. The dive would be a permanent one. And, and this phrase, little ones, has its roots in the Old Testament where it is used to speak of God's people. And I think maybe even Jesus is looking at those uh, that are following him afresh, those that are newer to the faith. And he says, one of the worst things that you could do, one of the worst sins you commit is to put a stumbling block in the life of a believer that would tempt him to sin. He doesn't even say cause to sin in the sense that, that you do something and inevitably it's sinning. But even the temptation that's going to come. He says temptations are going to come, but you should not be the cause of those temptations. He says, pay attention to yourselves. In other words, look at your life, examine your heart, be aware of your motives, keep a close watch on your life. Paul will even say in his letter that we ought to be willing to give up even good things that we are allowed to do by God, Christian freedom and liberty out of love to make sure that we don't cause someone else to be tempted. Well, that's ourselves. Well, what happens if someone else sins? Jesus says that as we think about what gospel holiness looks like, that we must not only be sure not to cause others to sin, but also that we are to confront others who do sin. We must confront others who sin. Jesus is very clear in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke him. That's what he says. Now, there is a fine line here, though, isn't there? On one level, we know that there are some who take an almost gleeful approach to pointing out someone's sin. Uh, there is almost an obscene joy in seeing someone else fall, and they are all the ready to be the one who goes and tells them that they need to repent. But that's generally not where we're at today. There are those people around, but as a whole, the evangelical church does not struggle with that particular sin. We are on the opposite end we are far more likely to say, well, that's none of my business. Well, I don't really know them that well. I, 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 don't, want, I don't want to get involved in all that kind of stuff. I can't judge anyone. And Jesus wants to be clear, that's a satanic way of thinking. Because we are our brother's keeper. We are called to judge our sister's sin. Not to put them in their place, but to love them. As God's people, we have been given a great responsibility to keep watch, not only on ourselves, but to be on watch for those around us in the community of faith. Jesus is saying that in living the life of faith, we have to risk personal discomfort or even awkwardness in order to confront another person's sin. Why? Why does he call us to that? Well, a few reasons. First of all, it protects them from the damage that can come from their sinfulness. I mean, I will go to some pretty uh, amazing lengths to keep one of my kids from sticking their hand in the campfire, right? 
or picking up a bottle of poison and drinking it. And I think you would do the same, right? Might involve yelling, might involve smacking a hand, it might involve yanking them up by their shirt, depending on what it is. Now, I'm not saying you go around smacking people in the hand and yanking them by their shirts when they sin. That's not the point. But my point is, when we see something with such a temporal effect, would we not care so gravely for something with a spiritual effect? Would we not care when we see someone not only slipping away from God, but perhaps even engaging in sin that would threaten their own soul? But we're not just thinking about them, we're thinking about the testimony of the church as well. Whenever a prominent pastor falls into immorality, into disgrace, it is not just his own life that is tarnished. It is the very testimony of the church, the very name of Jesus that is dragged down into the mud as well. And so we're concerned for the purity of God's people, but we're also concerned for the testimony of Christ's name. And for those reasons, Jesus calls us to confront others who sin. But then third, we're not only avoiding causing temptation, we're not only confronting those that sin, but we must completely forgive others who sin. We must completely forgive others who sin. Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, some people understand this verse along with what we see in places like Colossians 3, where Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, as saying that we must forgive only when someone repents of sin. Someone sins, they sin against you, but until they come to a place of repentance, then we don't forgive them. We, we actively withhold forgiveness because God only forgives when we repent. Now, there's many, many Bible scholars that I respect who hold that view, but I have a hard time understanding the verse that way. And we don't have time to get into all the nitty-gritty of explanations for and against. If you want articles or books, I will gladly send them to you. But let me just say that, uh, just an outline for here, the reason why I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. Number one, it goes against the natural, even commanded impulse for God's people to have a, an attitude of love and willingness to forgive. Christ commands that we forgive our debtors for the sake of our prayers. No caveat there. None at all. More than that, think about Jesus' own example as he hung on the cross. There are those mocking him, those who had beat him, those that had strung him up to die. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. How they said, oh, sorry, Jesus. We didn't know what we had done. Please forgive us. We repent. No, you don't find that anywhere in the gospel accounts. And yet, Jesus proactively saying, I forgive them, God. Please forgive them as well. And then think about the first Christian martyr, Stephen. As he is being stoned to death, he looks up to heaven and sees a vision of the risen Christ about to welcome him into his presence. And Stephen likewise asks that his killers, his murderers, be forgiven for their sin. And we could go on here, but the point is, I do not think the Bible teaches that in order for us to forgive, we must wait for someone else to repent. What I do think it says, and I think especially in this context, is that relationships will not be restored, reconciliation will not take place if both repentance and forgiveness take place. So I can forgive someone even if they're not repentant, but that doesn't mean we're going to go away friends. 
That doesn't mean we're going to go away unified in the Lord together as the covenant community He desires to be. However, true reconciliation can take place if I confront their sin, if they repent, and then I forgive them completely. No grudges, no hesitations, nothing held back. Then we're one in Christ. Then we're living the life of gospel faith that Jesus calls us to. And look how Jesus describes this forgiveness in verse 4. It just keeps going. He says, they come to you seven times in a day. Just keep forgetting them. Now, does that mean at, at 8 we, we say, oh, done. I did 1 through 7. That's all Jesus asked for. No. Numerically, the point is it's completion. In other words, you just keep going. You offer a complete forgiveness. You don't get to say, all right, I've had enough. I'm done forgiving that person. No, we extend forgiveness again and again and again. How? The same way that God forgives us, right? He, He never, thankfully, mercifully, he never gets to the point. He says, you know, I have forgiven you of this sin 50 times in the last two weeks. You keep committing the same sin. I'm tired of you coming. I'm done. You're gone. No more forgiveness. Mercifully, God never says that, and neither should we. Such forgiveness should mark out the lives of those who live a true gospel faith. But let's be honest, how can we live that way? Where do we find the power to be able to give so completely, so fully? Here we see the second thing that Jesus describes for us, and that is the power of gospel help. The power of gospel help. Jesus says that we should forgive seven times a day, never getting tired of dispensing mercy and grace to those around us, but that's difficult, isn't it? I mean, if you've ever really been sinned against, really raked over the coals, you know forgiveness is not an easy thing to do. I don't know if it's ever been from the pulpit, but with individuals I've shared before in one of my preaching classes in college, uh, one of the things you do is you, you know, hear lectures on here's how to preach, here's how to do a sermon, uh, all these kinds of things, and then you actually get up and give a sermon, and both the professor and your classmates fill out an evaluation form. And they give you hopefully helpful comments on things you could improve on, uh, mistakes you made, and you, you collect all those things, you take them in humbly and prayerfully, and you do better the next time you get up. And one of the times that uh, I was in preaching class, sitting on the front row, one of uh, the fellows that I knew well, uh, he had been in my unit uh, my freshman year, he gets up and he proceeds to have this whole sermon on integrity. And the sermon uh, says good things about integrity, but it's all driven by a contrast between himself as the man of integrity and another man his freshman year in his unit who lacks integrity. I was the man. So here I am sitting here uh, vacillating somewhere between embarrassment and anger the whole time having to listen and evaluate this sermon where he is the good guy, I am the bad guy. Even though previously we never talked about these things and he didn't come ahead of time. It took me a long time to forgive that guy for that. And God taught me a lesson about turn the other cheek because our senior year, in front of the entire student body, he proceeded to give the exact same sermon with the exact same illustration. And I, and I, was, and I was confronted with a like this, okay, what are you going to do? He even came and apologized for giving that sermon. And he did the same offense again. Do I, do I say, forget it? I forgive you once, I'm done. No, that's not what Jesus says. You have to forgive him again. And this time he didn't repent. 
and I'm not still holding the grudge. But where, where do you find the power to do that? Where did I find the power to do that? You understand the response that Jesus has. He says, look, this is the nature of holiness, of how you live your life, of how you interact with others, about how you must forgive and forgive and forgive. And what do they say? Increase our faith. We need more faith in order to do that. And there is a right impulse there. That is because that is where our help comes. It comes from God and we acquire it by faith. So the first thing we see here is that help comes in dependent faith. In dependent faith. The apostles don't see how in the world they can forgive this way. And so they, they inquire, they, they're motivated to appeal to Jesus on the level of faith. And they rightly understood, I think, that faith is a gift that is given by God. And that faith is needed in order to deal rightly with sin. One can only live out the kind of lives that God intends for us if we are dependent upon Him. If we are trusting Him to sustain us and give us the gifts and graces that we need. The apostles bring up the idea of dependence on God and faith, but notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't actually give them what they want. In fact, He, he he redirects. He doesn't really correct outwardly, obviously. He doesn't even answer directly. Instead, what he does, he redirects and says, no, no, you don't understand the nature of faith. It's not the amount that you must be worried about, but the depth. And so Jesus is saying here is that help comes by not only dependent faith, but deep faith, by deep faith. Now, that is a great contrast the myriad of pastors making promises based on misapplied scriptures, urging that God's people just need to have more faith and more faith and more faith, and then the keys of heaven's storehouses will be open to you, and you will have the treasures that you desire in this life. Mark this well. If someone ever tells you, you need more faith, they are either a false teacher or a confused Christian. Full stop. Because Jesus and the rest of the scriptures never teach that you need more faith. They always say you need real faith. It is not about the quantity, but the quality that God is concerned with. So what is your faith in? That, that's a question that needs to be asked. And the way you answer it will determine the quality or the purity or the depth of the trust that you have. Are you trusting in yourself? Are you trusting in your spouse or your job or the godliness that you think you're able to obtain or Christ himself? James has a whole section in his letter. And in fact, I think it's an outworking of what kind of faith do we have? Do we have genuine, consistent, deep, pure faith in God? Then this is what our life will look like. Works will flow from our justifying faith. But if we don't, then we are double-souled, double-minded. We are unstable. We are like a ship being thrown around in the storm, and therefore we should not expect any help to come from God. It's not about the amount. It's about the quality. And look what Jesus says. He bears that out. If you had faith, true faith, even like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, I think very specifically, Jesus picks one of the smallest seeds, it's only one to two millimeters in diameter and says, that's all you need for size. Right there. Can you see it? That's all you need. And if you have that true faith, even that size, then you get to look at this mulberry tree and say, uh, you're in my way. Get up. Out to see you go. That's what he's saying here. Now, that may not 
seem like a big deal to us because if we have a tree we don't like, we just call somebody with a big machine and they come and they take care of it. It's gone. Remember, Jesus is working in a day here when oil is for lamps, not for engines on machinery. And so Jesus is not just talking about the smallness of the seed, but he's also showing the largeness of this tree. The root system of a mulberry tree is wide and extensive. It's not something that you're just going to go out with a little shovel and get up in an afternoon. It's not going to happen. It's virtually impossible to uproot a full-grown mulberry tree. And so you can imagine in disciples, now they're thinking, tiny faith, big movement. Tiny faith, big movement. And the point is not that, you know, if we really trust God that we could do whimsical gardening. You know, we have this amazing authority. No, Jesus' point is that when we have sincere, deep faith, it connects us to God in such a way that he is able to work within us the help we need to do the impossible, like forgive our enemies, to forgive those who hate us, to forgive those who actively sin against us again and again and again and again. Some of us would rather try and work all day to uproot the mulberry tree. But God says, this is what I want to produce within you. By faith, God is our help. He is able to overcome within us our thirst for justice, our longing for vengeance, and allow us to reflect Christ himself who extended mercy and grace to those who would string him up like a criminal on the cross. And when we have that kind of help, when we are pursuing that kind of holiness, we also must understand our need for humility. This is the third thing that Jesus talks about here, the necessity of gospel humility. Jesus follows on from this teaching about faith with a parable. He says, look, when you are connected with God, you have an amazing help that is at your disposal, an amazing power, but remember who you are. Don't forget who you are. He says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping a sheep Say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Now, Jesus' question is rhetorical. No one's going to say yes. It is clearly understood that the answer is no. Servants are not treated like the family, okay? I mean, you just, you just watch, you know, Downton Abbey or something, you get a, a sense of this, right? Servants are in the basement at their own little dirty table having their supper while all of the masters are up in the tuxes in the dining hall enjoying the food that was prepared for them. They don't say at the end of the night, hey, come on up and, and have a drink with us. Come down and sit and join us at the table. They don't do that. That's not how servants and masters relate. And Jesus makes that clear in the next verse. He says, Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. This is, this is how servants deal with the master. They do the hard work out in the fields. Then they come home and the master says, hey, it's supper time. I'm ready when you are. I'm sitting down to dine. Clean yourself up. Dress right. Make my food. Bring it to me. And when you're done, then you can go and have your own supper. Do your job. Then take care of yourself. Moreover, Jesus asked, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Again, it's a rhetorical question. No, the master's not thanking the servant. He's a servant. This is his job. This is what he does. What do you expect? The disciples would would have understood this immediately. But notice the application. Jesus is saying, you are God's servants. Verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. 
Jesus says, regardless of how hard you work, regardless of how good of a job you do, the servant is still a servant. It's his job to serve the master. He does not expect special treatment. He does not expect even thanks. Now, many of us hear that. We have a, I mean, let's just be honest. I can see on some of your faces, you have a hard time hearing that from Jesus. What, 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 does that, what does that mean? It's not how I thought our, our relationship worked. Part of the reason why I think that we have a hard time with that is because we frankly think too highly of ourselves. We're not going to say it out loud, but we, in, our, in, our, you know, in our quiet moments, we think we're pretty fabulous and God's pretty, pretty uh, glad to have us on His team. Maybe we're not that shallow. Maybe we're even biblical and we hear that and we think, well, what about John 15? Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, now I call you friends. Or Galatians 4, Paul says, we are sons of God, even full heirs with Christ. So which is it? Because Paul will later call, identify himself as a slave of Christ in multiple levels. Are we friends? Are we sons? Are we slaves? The answer is all three. And if we understand what each of those pictures represent, we understand they're not mutually exclusive images. What is the context in which the image is, been, is being given? Here, the context, in other words, Jesus' point is this. God is not moved to bless us by anything we do for Him. Let, 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 me, let me repeat that because it's, it's widely misunderstood. God is not moved to bless us by anything we do for Him. doesn't matter how faithful we are, doesn't matter how godly we are, He does not owe us anything for that. So, so blow up in your minds, okay? If it's this massive rock that's been growing and sitting for, gener- for, for, for just years and years and years, pull in the dynamite now, lift up the plunger, and pull if you think, because I work hard for God, He will pour out blessings for me. It doesn't work that way. Church history is littered with examples that show it doesn't work that way. Hebrews 11 that, that I prayed from this morning shows God doesn't always work that way. Again, we have a hard time with that. And if we do, it's probably because it's ingrained in our head, God owes me if I serve Him. But Jesus is teaching God will never be our debtor by our works. Uh, remember in, in Rock the Block we sang... God is not like us as if He needed something. We don't add something to God. We do not contribute to Him. We do not make His life better at the end of the day. No, all of the benefits are one way. It's from Him to us. Put yourself in the mind of the disciples. Maybe this is what you're in mind as well. We left our homes for you, Jesus. We left our families for you, Jesus. We left our jobs for you, Jesus, all to follow you. You're saying that God owes us nothing for all that? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I think we struggle to, to, to comprehend that, to really live that way on a daily basis because of what, um, well, I'll put the, let, me, let me back up and say, I think Mark Dever summarizes the problem well. I think he summarizes well why we struggle with that. He says, often we are fine calling ourselves a servant until we're treated like one. We have no problem saying, I'm a servant of God. I'm just here to serve. But then when you're actually asked to serve, when you're treated like a servant, well, I'm out. Don't like that. What do you mean I should show up in a rotation to come early and serve people? 
by making coffee or being at the door or, or come during the middle of the week and clean toilets. You, you realize that somebody has to do those things around this, around this place. And there are some members here who come faithfully week in, week out, month after month, and they get down and, and, and they scrub your refuse out of our bathrooms. That, that's the nature of servanthood. Do they get thanked for that? Nope. No, you know, they don't get a better parking space. They, 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 don't get a, they don't get credit towards their tithe. That doesn't happen that way. Because according to Jesus, if they're doing it with right motives, if they're doing it with sincere faith, they're just doing their duty, which is to love one another. But do we think that way? I think we're often too easily enamored with what is best for us what is convenient for us rather than what God calls us to do as a life of a servant. Servant. Second of all, I think we forget what a great privilege it is to actually serve God. Do you remember what the psalmist says in Psalm 84? A day, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. So, So you think about what the psalmist is saying. A thousand days anywhere else does not compare if I have to even just one day in, in the presence of God Almighty. Now, we don't think that way. We think, you know, a lifetime on the beach in Maui is about the best thing in the world. Or for some of you, uh, a wilderness excursion in Alaska hunting every known animal, whatever it is, you're right? Uh, all that, 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 would, that would be great. But, but the, the, the psalmist even says, you know, I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'd rather be the guy that stands outside the palace opening the door, just a doorkeeper right? You go to Africa, what does the doorkeeper do? He sits outside in the rain all day. Sits outside in the hot all day because he's the doorkeeper. He's a security guard. Anybody shows up, he's got to open it up. He doesn't doesn't come in the house. He can't keep the door if you're in the house. You got to be outside. And the psalmist says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper of the house of my God than live in the tents of the wicked. In other words, being with God is such a joy, such a privilege. Everything else pairs in comparison, no matter how great the benefits might seem. And it's that kind of attitude that should permeate the life of faith. Not an attitude of demand and expectation for services rendered, but a humble realization that our greatest joy should come from simply doing our duty and serving God. Now, once again, we say, how do we live that way? (laughs) That's not a mindset that comes naturally to us. It is drilled into our minds. If you work hard, you will reap the benefits. I mean, that's... At least for a long, long time, that's how our culture has thought. But God is saying it, it, that doesn't translate the same way. The benefits may not come to you. The benefits are going to go to the kingdom. The benefits will flow towards others. So, so how do we cultivate this kind of gospel humility that says, God, I'm just glad to do my duty. I'm just, I'm just happy to serve. Well, I think it goes back to the gospel itself. It's called gospel humility for a reason. In other words, the true life of faith will only be lived out if we understand and if we embrace and if we keep before us the motivation of gospel healing. This is the last thing we see in our passage, the motivation of gospel healing. I don't think it's accidental that Luke gives us this story right after Jesus' parable about the servant doing his duty, about the need for sincere faith, about 
relating to others among God's people with holiness. He says, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Now we've explained before, but it was months ago and you may have forgot or you may not have been here. In in biblical terminology, leprosy can actually mean a a lot of different things, a lot of different kinds of skin diseases, including a condition actually called leprosy that still exists today. And in the context of the Old Testament, certain conditions, certain skin conditions would clear up and then you would be examined fully by a priest and they would say, okay, you're healed, it's gone away, you can come back in the camp or no, you're still covered in whatever the skin disease is, you got to stay outside the camp, you can't associate or mingle with God's people. Now, the actual disease of leprosy had no cure in Jesus' day. Today, we are thankful and grateful to have effective drugs that treat the infection, but that's only been in the last 20 or 30 years for the vast majority of human existence. Uh, apart from divine infer- intervention, if you got leprosy, you died from leprosy. Living with it was physically difficult. It creates open sores and lesions on the skin, which will often burst and cause great pain. Even wearing clothing then or bathing that area becomes more painful. And as the disease progresses, you face permanent nerve damage, which often leads to physical disfigurement and the loss of sensation in your limbs. But the physical condition was frankly nothing compared to the social dimension. Living in Israel, these leopards would have been under the Old Testament law, which meant they did not live with the rest of God's people. They lived outside the camp where everyone else was gathered. They were declared spiritually unclean. In fact, if anyone got close, lest they be tainted, they would have to yell out and announce, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, keep your distance, stay away. Because if that person touched you, now, if it was an open sore, they might actually contract the leprosy. But even if it wasn't an open sore, even if the leprosy was all on your stomach and they came up just to comfort you and put their hands on your shoulders, they would be spiritually contaminated, as it were. Not as if sin transgressed, but, but ceremonially, now they were also unclean. And they would have to go outside the camp with you and go through a process of and time of cleansing before they were permitted back in the city. So here, here are these guys, they see Jesus about to enter the city and they know this is their only chance with him. If they do not catch him before he goes in the city, they can't go in after him. So they yell out crying for mercy. And what does Jesus say? He says, obey the law, do what it says, go show yourself to the priest. And off they go. Now, why do they say that? Well, again, it's only when the priests found them to be clean because they re-enter society. But notice what Luke says. As they went on their way, they were cleansed. Ten people covered in leprosy, no hope of ever living a normal life again. They beg for mercy and Jesus gives them exactly what they want. But notice how they respond. Only one of them, when he saw that he was healed, verse 15, turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus is astonished of the 10 people that he healed. Only one came back and that was a Samaritan. 
not because Jesus denigrated the Samaritans. No, the Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile, hated by both groups. That also meant that they then kept to themselves and they had a twisted, uh, uh, edited version of the Pentateuch and so did not rightly understand God or worship Him. And yet here is a man who still understands the mercy that God has given to him better than people of Jesus' own people, Israel. You you have here the picture of the Pharisees who think, God owes me the healing. God owes me the mercy. And Jesus says, no, this Samaritan understands it better. This Samaritan understands the response of healing, and that is to worship Phil Riken says that the others were like a mother whose son was swept up into a violent tornado. She wept and she begged and she cried out to God to give her her son back, that she would do anything for that son. And while she was praying, the son fell from the sky and landed safely in her lap. She joyfully hugged and kissed this little boy, but then she held him back at arm's length and looked him over and with a sneer looked up into heaven and said, He was wearing a hat! Some of you will get that later. We presume upon God as if somehow what he gives us is not the best or somehow less than what we deserve. And more seriously, John Calvin warns, we have short memories in magnifying God's grace. Every blessing that God confers upon us perishes through our carelessness if we are not prompt and active in giving thanks. This not only robs God of His rightful glory, but it empties us of the motivation we need to worship and serve Him. You, you understand here in the context that when Jesus heals, it is a picture of salvation, and leprosy is an especially powerful picture. In fact, in fact God even calls sin like leprosy in Isaiah 1. Like leprosy, sin is incurable apart from God's working. Like leprosy, sin disfigures our lives and our hearts, making us numb to its deadly effects. Like leprosy, sin cuts us off from our spiritual relationships that God means us to have and grow in. Like leprosy, sin leaves us spiritually dead before God. The result is that just like these men, we desperately need Jesus. And it's only when we remember the mercy shown to us by God through Christ, when we remember the precious blood of God's own Son dripping from a rugged cross for us and an empty tomb with folded clothes left behind by a risen Savior, will we find the right motivation we need to live lives of gospel faith like Jesus describes here. When we remember the spiritual healing that Jesus mercifully has given to us when we repented and put our trust in Him, only then we will have the right stimulus to live humble, joyful lives of service to Him. Francis King Louis XII languished in prison before he ascended to the throne. Once in power, his advisors counseled him to seek revenge on all of his enemies, those that were tortuous to him in prison. And so he sat down and he compiled a list of everyone who had committed crimes against him. And next to each name, he pulled out a red ink and put the sign of a cross. Word got out about this list and people were sure it meant that those individuals were marked for death. And many fled the city and even the country seeking to preserve their lives. But then King Louis clarified his intent of that list. Here's what history records him saying. The cross I drew beside each name was not a sign of punishment, but a pledge of forgiveness extended for the sake of the crucified Savior, who upon his cross forgave his enemies 
and prayed for them. Such is an example of the life lived by true faith, shaped by the gospel of Christ. Such a life is lived by deep dependency on the help that God alone provides. Such is a life that is humbled when, we are, when, when it considers the cost of salvation, even the death of God's own Son. This morning, it is my prayer that each and every one of us will live such a life based and rooted in and powered by faith in Jesus alone. Father, I ask that you make these words, your words, live in our minds and our hearts. Help us not only to understand them, but to actually believe them and desire to be changed by them. Father, only you can bring about change. Only you can give us the ability to to forgive and to pursue holiness. God, only you can give us the humility that we need in service to you. God, give us a, a right sense of who we are because of the message of the gospel of Christ. Amen.